Hey, hey, welcome back, Freedom Pack family. Happy Monday. Today on the show, we are joined by New York Times best-selling author, motivational speaker, and palliative care physician, Bronnie Way. Now, we wanted to get Bronnie on the show because her book, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, is an absolute classic and it's such a fascinating story basically brawny sat by the bedsides of hundreds and thousands of people and oh in in her time as a palliative care physician she overheard conversations people told her specifically what they had regretted doing or not doing throughout their lives i think that really when you take time to ponder your own mortality and the fact that we are going to die. If you look at it from a place of liberation, then you realise that our time is limited. We all only have a certain number of heartbeats. So I hope that you guys take this information today and you really try to just question, you know, like how you're all living our lives and, and really think about what's important. At least that's what our aim is for this episode. As always, if you guys enjoyed this episode, our only ask is that you leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps us so much with the visibility of the show. Also, if you guys want to email us or get in touch with us, please ask us anything. Send us an email, freedompact at gmail.com. Without any further ado brawny way welcome to the freedom pact it's an absolute pleasure thank you if we could start off for maybe our listeners who haven't read your work yet if you could give us a brief background into you know how this research came about and your experience working with dying people and and what that was like and where that took place Sure. Okay. Um, it took place in Sydney and Melbourne in Australia and it wasn't really, um, there was never official research into it. They were just, I, I put out a prayer for a job with heart. I, I was working in the banking industry and then when I was in the UK doing the Aussie backpacker thing, I started doing companion work for elderly people. And so when I returned to Australia, I just couldn't go back to banking. And I found myself, uh, I was on a, a different path, a, a singer-songwriter path, and I wanted a, a job without any rent or a mortgage. And so I took a live-in job as a companion for an elderly lady. And she turned out to be terminally ill and that led me onto a very unexpected path of palliative care and I sat by the bedsides of dying people for about eight years and I really, I never saw it coming, not in a, not in a million years, but in hindsight, of course, I can see how, how I was led to it. And so they were just repeated conversations over and over. I, I never actually did any official research what what was happening was because the dying people slept a lot I was keeping a journal of my own life and my own transformation of the things that I was learning through them and I just found that common themes kept coming up again and again about regrets and the only questions I asked 
Well, if the patient brought up the theme of regrets on their own and it was obvious that they wanted to expand on the subject and so then naturally I'd ask relevant questions. And uh, But then I, I really, my own life was being transformed but I really didn't um, foresee that it was going to Entang- and become a part of my my creative journey. I saw my palliative care work and my work as a singer-songwriter and eventually I became a blogger and an author, but um, I saw them as two completely separate parts of, or two, two completely separate lives really and had no idea that the love and the effort and the, just the selflessness that I was bringing to my patients would actually be rewarded by um, becoming merged with with my creative path so yeah that's sort of how it how it all took off and I'm so grateful because we really don't know what's ahead for us but but you know it's it's amazing how many of our skills from the past become relevant to our life's calling even if we can't imagine how they will are you familiar with BJ Miller Brawny No, and should I be knocked down if I'm not? (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. No, no, we had uh, BJ on the show. He's a palliative care physician, and we did a yeah, and we did we did a podcast with him. He's just released a book called A Beginner's Guide to the End. Um, real, real, super interesting guy. And Mm. after the episode we did with him. I remember thinking about, you know, what he told us about how he would be able to form, you know, these great relationships with people at the end of their lives. And and I remember thinking, you know, just the the toll which I, I, I'm not like I, what I suppose I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure I personally would be able to to you know, to be in that situation. It just seems there, it, it, like I, I can understand why it's like such a a special position. Um, what what character traits do you have which you feel as if you know mm. makes you so effective in that role? I think it is a calling. I definitely, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a calling. It is it, it, not for everybody. Definitely not for everyone. And BJ is spot on when he says that about how rich the relationships are that you form. I think the probably most important most important skill of all is that you are a good listener and that you don't need to prove anyone right or wrong and that you can bring compassion to so so I guess three things um, listener, gentleness and compassion. And if you can merge all of those and become a gentle, compassionate listener, even better. Do you think the fact that you write solely off actual experiences and actual conversations over, say, academic research, do you think that that gives the book and your work an advantage of more human and more natural results? Mm, I think so, yes. I... You know, I've been called a lot of things on the internet and um, people have called me a nurse and a doctor and they've called me a lot of other things. But um, 
but I was a carer, you know, I was a caregiver. That's all I was. I was unqualified and everything else. And I really believe that I would not have had such personal conversations if there was any sort of academic tone around the conversation because they were personal. They These were people whose you know, we're, we're counting on me to dress them and to toilet them and to feed them and change their sheets from underneath them because they couldn't even get up. And so it was, it was a very intimate relationship that I would have with my patients as any carer working in a home environment does. And, um, yeah, and so I really felt I, I grew to love my patients and I know that they loved me and... So it was a friendship, a conversation between friends and definitely not uh, academic research. And, you know, it's been interesting because some people have sort of bagged that and said, oh, well, what does she know? It's like, well, <laughs> I know some really honest conversations that that only carers can get to witness. So, yeah, so I think it's because it was not academic that these conversations unfolded in in such a raw and loving way, Joe. Yeah, I I completely agree because I think to myself that if I was in a hospice or if I had ten to twelve weeks to live, then I don't want to be filling out surveys or doing interviews with people that I don't know. <laughs> you know, no. I, I, there's there's no, you know, you you. In, I I imagine that in that in that stage, you want to be filled with connection and things like kindness and empathy. And this is where I feel like the book has tremendous value and worth because in that stage people will open up to people that they care about rather than a professor or a researcher coming in that they've never met before. Do you feel well, like that's, that's, your, that's your right. superpower there? Yes, I, I, I guess. <laughs> superpower is a good name, I, I guess. Thank you. Um Yes, I, I think so. And and in my situation, I was doing 12-hour shifts from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. five days a week, and then I'd increase that to six days a week in their final week or two. And, um, and so the families would come and go, the community nurse would come and go, the palliative care doctors, would, a doctor would come and go, and then it would just be me and the patient again, or occasionally the patient's spouse might be out in another room but um but a lot of my people were people on their own and so you know they're scared and they're processing a lot of things and in a way I think it was easier for some of my patients to share things with me because I wasn't so you know I wasn't their child so they weren't worried so much about me and my reaction and I also brought a complete lack of judgment against you know in, in with me and they they picked up on that so yeah I, I really think that listening is is probably the greatest strength in a role like that but I also think listening is like it's like a secret ingredient like a secret ingredient for a happy life if you can become a good listener you'll just pick up so much more about life than other people do that's, that's such a you know, an interesting point and you talk about there that the work in which you were doing. Do you think that more people should consider the field as you talk about hospice work, palliative care? Do you think that more people could, you know, maybe even volunteer? 
You know, I think I think the volunteer work is probably needed more in aged care than it is in palliative care because there's a lot of people are called to the end of life work and it is a calling but there's but prior to that point there's a lot and countless amount of beautiful good-hearted people just like you and I who had a life and who had you know who who were smart and were functioning and then their bodies have worn down and all of a sudden they're in these soulless nursing homes with no good conversation and staff who are run off their feet or are jaded and tired of their role and you know there's there's certainly lots of loving people still work in nursing homes but they're under time pressure and they've got duties and to-do lists and whatnot so I really believe that a bigger difference would be made if people volunteered to ha- just go and meet with with people you know just form a strong relationship with a couple of people in a nursing home that would make their end of life so much more beautiful because I think a lot of, you know, age people and death is just so behind closed doors in our societies. And and these are just regular people who, you know, they're not ready to die yet and but the environments that they're living in are killing them anyway, you know, making like taking their spirit away before their body's ready to die. So if they could have some fresh energy sometimes and a – and someone actually interested in them, then that uh, that voluntary role would would make much more of a difference than even more people signing up for palliative care. I I believe. For sure, for sure. So when you say that that it's it's like a calling for you, was there any past life experiences? Are there any character traits? Perhaps any motivations which really have led to you finding that that sense of purpose? Well, I was really close to my grandma, um, my little gran, and she used to enjoy talking about death with me because she found that her children didn't want to speak about the fact that she was going to die one day. And, and I was really at ease if she, you know, just sometimes she'd say, oh, I'm sick of this damn life I'm ready to go and I think she lived for like another 20 years after that but um but people would say oh don't be silly don't say that don't you know and they wouldn't allow her to say it and whereas I would turn around and say well why why gran like why why do you feel that way and she would say you know I've done what I'm here to do I'm bored my husband's died I've I've had enough I've got aches and pains blah 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 and so you know, there were there were conversations we had where I we were both where I was in tears, certainly, and a couple of times where she was. But I guess that's probably part of my ease slipping into that unexpected role because the first woman I looked after, my gran had had died by then a few years earlier at, in in her nineties, and the first patient I looked after. I just I had no idea what I was doing and so I just treated her as if I would my grandmother and I treated I gave her manicures I brushed her hair I did facials I you know massaged her body really tenderly and um yeah so it was based on how I would have treated my grandmother that I shaped my role as a carer so how old were you when when 
you're looking at your grandmother and she's, you know, can essentially confronting her own mortality. Mm, I was in, I finished in, let me see, I've never really thought about that, in my 30s, <laughs> no, coming into my 40s, yeah, no, hang on, hang on, 2009, 30, 7, 30. oh, okay, so I was in my 30s, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I just, it's all gone so fast. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> I can't believe I don't even know the answer to that. I know the year I, I know the year I finished, and then I just had to backtrack in the, in the math side of it. But um, yeah, it was I was in my thirties. I was yeah, I was coming towards the forty by the time I finished. Right, I see. So, uh, I I'm just thinking about it. So usually when when we released the the BJ podcast and we really looked into really explored this idea of of death and, and you know what uh, dr miller being around so many people that had died or were dying had taught him about life do you feel like confronting our own mortality is freeing rather than just a, a difficult conversation or oh, you're putting a downer on things <laughs> whenever we try to have the conversation with people I think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself and for people in your life. I think that that is one of our hugest mistakes in, in our society, that we don't speak about death enough and that we pretend it's actually not going to happen. Because once you contemplate the fact that you are actually going to die, and that's you know that applies to all of us, um, that you are going to die, you, you can then use death as a tool for living because you realize that time is an ever-decreasing resource. You cannot replace it. And the more you realize that and bring awareness into the fact that, okay, I don't have forever to honor my dreams here, but I do have now, then you start letting go of things like what other people think of you or what if I make a mistake and I go the wrong way or whatever – and you find the courage to just take one step after another because you know that death is waiting for you and if you want to get to the end of your life and, or even if you want to live your life now free of regrets or at the end of your life, if you want to be regret-free, then there's no point waiting around for one day to get on with something. If you want to be regret-free, you have to stop now and think, okay, I'm on limited time. And it doesn't have to be like a desperate um, you know, de a desperation and a uh, and and terror associated with it. It can be more of a deep acceptance that, okay, I am going to die, and I've got a lot of things I want to do in this lifetime, and I want to become a certain kind of person. So, what can I do for myself now, as who I am now, to get on with that? And what you do is you take the first step, and then you take the next step, and you don't need to know all of the answers. You just need to realize that you're going to die and face the fact and talk about it and bring it into conversations like let's just talk about death because it's there and yeah and the more we talk about it it just gives it can give you so much courage to live such a better life because you realize okay well <laughs> really matter. it doesn't matter at all what anyone else thinks of me what matters is what my heart is calling me to do I'm going to do that I love that, and that is that is probably the main takeaway we had from 
the the last episode we did is that you know accepting mortality does you know it it will it will heighten your your existing life and um that's something that i was never really good at or i was afraid to talk about but lately that's something we've been uh been trying to explore a bit more and um it makes me wonder these conversations you had so you know you're not just sat there you're not inputting data into a chart they're human they're real conversations how have those conversations changed the way that you live your day-to-day life oh they've changed every aspect of my life thank goodness oh gosh um I've done a, a massive amount of healing through the learning I've done with dying people. I, I was pretty broken and I was carrying a lot of a lot of pain from my upbringing, a lot of nonsense that other people had dumped on me, whereas realising, just going through my own transformation alongside of people dying with the heartache and anguish of regret has really brought me into myself because I, I've realised, okay, I am witnessing this firsthand. I am never going through that myself. Life is giving me a repeated lesson here, which is an incredible blessing to see what regret looks and feels like when it's too late to make any changes and I wouldn't wish it on anyone on this planet. And so, yeah, for me, I'm you know, one of my things was that I, I just didn't want to be known or heard or seen because that was my coping mechanism growing up that that I found it was easier to keep the peace and not be noticed than than to speak up that was my false sense of keeping the peace whereas now I am who I am I you know I have a good kind heart so that's good enough for me because if I'm sharing how I'm feeling it's always with the most loving intention possible how other people choose to receive that is is from their reality not not from mine so i've changed in that way that i'm not scared to express myself in in two ways like in um in letting people know i love them but also in speaking up in my own defense which which are things i've witnessed in dying people um around that their regrets and yeah i'm also like regrets shape they shape every single decision i make now whether consciously or unconsciously because i know that if I'm wanting to go one particular way and my heart is calling me another way, even if the way my heart is calling me feels more scary or more challenging or whatever, I'm going to take that way and not because I'm a sucker for challenges and hard work but because I've witnessed a pain of regret. So it's like, well, okay, I'm at a crossroad here. If I go this way, it might be easier, it might you know, seem seem much more simple, but my heart's not really in it. So if I go this other way, I don't know how I'm going to work it out, but that's the way I'm being called to. If I, I can't regret this, I have to go the way my heart's calling me to. And so I step that way with, with trust one step at a time. And sure enough, in time, it reveals itself as absolutely perfect for the way I was meant to go. This is absolutely fascinating. So you're using regret as a decision-making tool. Mm, yeah, every single day, and and not always consciously because I, it's been a part of my life now for for years, you know, twenty odd years. And so, but but certainly, there's a lot of conscious decisions. Most of it is unconsciously now. I just know my heart well enough, and I know uh, I just don't 
um, lie to myself anymore. I, I can't lie to myself and say, oh, well, yeah, this way will work. It's like, actually, Bronnie, you know it's not going to work, so don't even waste your energy on that. And so, yeah, and then there's, there are very conscious decisions sometimes when I'm, I'm facing a really something that might really scare me and then I think, well, I have to do it. <laughs> I just have to do it because this is part of, part of what I'm here to do and part of having a regret-free life means that you've had the courage to honour your heart and follow where it, it leads, you not where society or other people's expectations lead you. You know, it's, it's interesting you say this because I feel as if since the conversation we had with Dr. Miller on the show and, and this conversation and, and reading your book, and, and it's the first time I think that Lewis and I, we've ever really, I mean, I think we've ever even, you know, ex- explored the idea. And and as you say, Blair, I mean, we, we've taken this, the, you know, the same decision-making process that you just talked about with him. We've, we've applied it. One example I would give is I joined a, uh, a dance class. And uh, for anyone listening to this, I'm, I'm a horrible, horrible dancer I've never danced in my life apart from in nightclubs <laughs> and <laughs> when I signed up they they said that there was a, like a, a dancing competition where like a beginner would partner with a professional it's in front of like 500 people and it's in like 12 weeks away and uh, and as soon as they they like invited me to I remember thinking I'm gonna die one day <laughs> why not <laughs> And then when I was driving there, in my mind, because a part of me was like, I really want to do this. But then for other reasons, it was okay, you know, like, what if I fall over? What if, you know, something bad happens? Or if I embarrass myself in front of my friends, my family? But then in my mind, I was going, you know, this, I won't even, I won't even care at the end of my life. So I signed up for it. So on October eighteenth, I, I will I will compete in it. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done, and that's right. I mean, so what if you fall over and make a mistake? No one's going to be pointing at you down the street in two years' time saying, "Oh, there's that bloke that fell over that time." <laughs> they, they're probably going to be thinking, "Gosh, I wish I had the the, the guts like he did because you know he got up and did it, and he's and and look at how how good he is now." You know, so it's. Yeah, it's things like that, absolutely. The more, it it really doesn't matter. You've just got to go and have fun. And I really do believe that the greatest appreciation we can show for our lives, for our life, is to enjoy it as fully as possible. And so that's what you're doing. So well done, well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, So I was just wondering, what, what is your process for confronting death? We interviewed Robert Green last night and every morning Robert Green does a does a 35 minute meditation and and he and he thinks about his death is is your process is it that vigorous no I've done enough with death now I don't need to take my like I don't want to take myself there because I it's the reality of death has been put in front of me so repeatedly that uh, that I don't do that. I, I've had to think about it other times in my life and I've certainly faced death um, in myself through meditation and through contemplation 
So it's not just witnessing other people's death. I have taken myself exactly through what you just said about Robert. But um, but no, it's not my, my process now. It's just a part of who I am these days that that time is sacred and my greatest commitment is to being as present, as fully present as possible in my life so that when I'm looking back, I might say, gosh, it's gone fast, but I was there for most of it. I didn't, you know, I'm not just sort of thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I wish I'd looked back on that and paid more attention. My my process, I guess, is that I'm so fully, as fully committed as possible to living presently with as much trust as, as is needed because um, we don't know all the answers and as humans we tend to want to find all those answers and and solve them before we even need to solve them. So for me, my, my process is more about, okay, this is where I'm at now. This is where I'm hoping to be going. I don't know all of the steps there yet, but this is the step I'm in now, so I'm going to be as fully present as I can be in this step, and I know that the next step will reveal itself when I'm ready to know it. Before we get into the top five regrets that you talk about, I'm sat here, I'm looking at them written down, and this seems to be one sort of overarching theme that seems to be rooted in most, if not all, of these regrets. And I think about, you know, maybe some of the regrets I may have had, and, and in my life, like maybe starting this podcast, even stuff that small, and it seems to be rooted in a lot of that, and that is courage or lack of it and it makes me wonder what is it about humans the way we live life that has sapped that courage out you know out of us why why do we lack that courage that leads us to these regrets i think a lot of it is that whether we want to be or not until you reach, reach a certain place in yourself were influenced by the opinions of others and no one wants to look a fool and no one wants to feel different like um like they don't belong they don't no one needs to be ridiculed because there's enough self-condemnation without you know setting yourself up for more from the public or from loved ones i really i mean from the moment where we're born or from the moment we can understand a two-way conversation we are trying to be like other people. We're copying our parents and we're, we're a mirror of them and or whoever else is around us. And so it's just in our, our primal nature to start becoming like everybody else because it's a survival thing. But somewhere along the way, that sense of power got unbalanced and distorted and we lost sense, we lost our connection with our our own inner wisdom, our own guidance system. So I, I do think that the lack of courage, whether you're conscious of it or not, most of the lack of courage comes down to how you're going to appear in front of other people. And when you face death and or you're around death so much, or in my case I have been, but, but even just facing death and contemplating it, you end up letting go of all of that because that's their reality you're in your own reality. No one can fully understand where you're coming from or why you do things. And letting go of how you're perceived by others is one of the most incredible gifts you can give to yourself. And 
Yeah, so I do believe that that, that is where, where, where the lack of courage comes from. Can I ask, Brotney, um, I recently read, uh, I recently was going through some of Brene Brown's work and in her studies on uh, people, she talked about how in this society there's this there's this desire to just live a like a crazy overstimulated life where it's always from one trip to the next or the next house, the next car, and and it feels as if if our life isn't spectacular, if it isn't filled you know dusk till dawn then we must be failing. But she, but Brene talks about how there's actually magic in the ordinary moments, you know, in the human moments, the micro moments, like someone, maybe someone cuts you off in traffic and they turn around and apologize or a co-worker brings you a, a cup without, you know, without you even asking them to do so or... Your your dog is is waiting for you every every day as, as you come home. Is is this what you think about as well about these micro moments? Mm, I absolutely do. I in in living in the present moment as much as possible. It is those moments that actually make your life amazing, because you see things that other people don't see because they're too busy striving and chasing all the time. And even though I'm, you know, my, my work has been very, very successful and I'm, I'm known internationally, I'm far more committed to my regular everyday life than I am to my to, to how I'm perceived in, in the public eye because of that, because I realise that the moments are in, and, and I mean some of them are, are incredibly cute. Like I have a seven and a half year old daughter, so I find love notes from her all over the place all the time. And and I mean those things are obviously beautiful moments. But but there's also smaller moments than that. Just when I see her grasp an understanding of something, or uh, today today for example, Joe, I was a bit challenged with something wouldn't upload on my computer and usually I spend this day Thursday as a um, writing my novel I'm writing my first novel and I'm pretty disciplined with it and I normally have to do about an hour of of admin and then uh, on that day there's other days it's all admin but but on the, the couple of days a week I, I work on my novel it's only a small amount of admin but it ended up taking a few hours and the best part of my writing time was slipping away. And so I was there just getting a bit frustrated and then I thought, no, I'm not, this isn't how I want to live today. I don't want to allow this technology to to take my power from me. I have a choice here. How, what's the best way I can enjoy this day even with what I'm dealing with? And so I restarted the computer. So it was taking about three hours to upload this particular video, short video, to my membership community. And I turned off all the things I was meant to turn off to make it happen. And anyway, so I just restarted the computer. I uploaded the video again and it was on on 0% had uploaded when I walked out the door and I just thought, if it's gone up to 10% by the time I get back, fine, whatever. It had gone up to 99 and then sat for an hour and a half. So it's like, uh. so I just thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. This is, 
today is every single day is a sacred day and life is in the moments so I just jumped on my bike instead I gave myself the day off riding I went out on my push bike rode along a creek sat by the creek for a while went to a cafe had some lunch went to a a park took some photos of some wildlife some some birds uh, some white cockatoos and some rainbow lorikeets just the bird life in the park came home a couple of hours later completely different person and the file had uploaded it was all like easy and it and because I'd chosen to not allow my moment the little moments to be like that and as a result I was interacting with people I was enjoying the sun the winter sunshine which is glorious here you know summer's like really harsh where I am so winter is just gorgeous and yeah, so it's it's making choices like those where, you know, okay, I'm serving a community. They're expecting this video on this day. But I got to the point where I thought, you know, if they don't get the video today, it's it's a first world problem. It's not the end of the world. You know, it's I'm going to enjoy my day today. I'm not going to give in to this frustration just because of other people's expectations and my community would have understood anyway they're, they're gorgeous you know lovely community but that aside I made a choice that the moment I was in was not going to be lived the way it was heading so you know I brought awareness to it and presence and ended up having a gorgeous day my, my novel didn't get written but hey you know one day off doesn't matter <laughs> exactly that's a beautiful example and um I think this is a perfect time to, to move into the regrets. And the first one I've got written down in front of me is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And I wonder if you can recount any of the initial ideas or the initial conversations that started this thinking before it was morphed into the statement itself can you remember any of the conversations that got you thinking about this regret mm, sure sure one of my favorite patients even with all the people I looked after over eight the eight years was a little lady called Grace and she was the first person I heard this regret from and because it had such a powerful impact on me when it started coming up again and again and again with other people, it's like, oh, my goodness, okay, Grace was just the first to say this. So she had lived, she was, I think she was in her late 70s or early 80s, and she had lived the life expected of her, of her generation, of her society. She'd stayed married. In her own words, her husband had been a tyrant. She <laughs> said they hadn't, they hadn't had any joy for years and years really gorgeous adult children you know lovely kind-hearted kids but um yeah so she had a dream just to travel australia she didn't want to travel the world she didn't have huge dreams she just wanted to get on a, a coach tour and and travel some of australia and he didn't want to do any of it and so she was just his she was his wife and just did everything that was expected of her and then he got ill and was taken into a nursing home and so and had to stay there. He, he was too ill to be able to ever come home. And so for a very short time, and I'm talking like a week, maximum a week, um, Grace started thinking about, okay, like just adjusting to things, okay, this is a new, new part of my life now. 
I have some choices here. What am I going to do? Started looking, went to the travel agent, got some brochures for, for travel. And then um, within three weeks of her of him going into the nursing home, she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. She had never smoked. He was a smoker. And, yeah, she she was in palliative you know, needed palliative care within three or four weeks of him going, like, and she just went downhill so absolutely so fast. And she was the first person who said this and held my hand really fiercely saying, why did I live, why didn't I live true to myself? Why, why did I live the life expected of me? And squeezing my hand and she said to me, Bronnie, Promise me, promise this dying woman that you are never going to have this regret yourself. Don't, don't you dare let me go through this pain and you do the same thing. Like you promise me you're going to learn from this. And we were both crying at the time. And, and I said, oh, yeah, of course, Grace, I, I promise you. And, and, you know, I, I did promise her, but I also prom- promised myself in, in that moment. And, uh, yeah, and she, she died really, cross really angry at herself because she realized it too late she didn't have the energy to do a thing other than walk on a zimmer frame from one room into the bathroom from a bedroom to the bathroom and even that got too hard after a short time wow jesus you know that's that's such a uh, a powerful story i wonder what could this example look like in modern life could it perhaps be the parents pushing a child down a particular path which maybe they know that it'll keep them safe safer instance like say they want to become say their parents want their child to become a lawyer or a doctor would that apply to this one absolutely yes it would and and it's not only things like that i mean these in the times we're living in now you really can be anything if if you've got a passion for something and you've got the commitment you can find a way to make it work. I mean, look at us. I'm in Australia and you're in Wales and, and here we are both doing work we love and connecting with each other. So there's, you know, with the internet, there's there's so many more ways to create your own career. But with the internet also comes additional pressure. So it could also, it could be stuff like that, like where the parents are sort of thinking, oh, I want my child to be safe and secure and, and to get a responsible job and all that. And that could that's their fear being <laughs> dumped upon their child because the child is a wise, intuitive being in their own right and can actually find their own way if they're if they're given the encouragement to and the and the loving support to. But it also can apply because of these identities we have to create online and you know, through social media and that sort of thing. So a lot of people so, so for for me, okay, I've I've had over a million people read my books, and there's it's in thirty two languages. There's a movie being made. I should be up there schmoozing with the best of them, you know, but I'm not. I'm living a really simple life, and I don't have a massive following um, on social media. I have an incredibly devoted, loyal following, but I don't have a massive following. So there's been times I've been potentially disadvantaged because of my social media numbers um but to me they're not numbers they're people and their connections and um so i could sort of think okay well oh gosh i better do this i I better lift my game i better 
you know, choose different wording. I, I, you know, better learn more about how to do this and this and this and increase my audience and da-da-da-da-da. And there's positives in that. I, I would reach more people. I would help more people in some ways. But unless I'm doing it in an authentic way, then I'm heading for that regret myself because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm doing it because it's expected of me to be on this level when I'm actually living the life I want to be living. You know, this is what a dream life is for me. You know, my dream life is leaving space to breathe. My dream life is having the freedom to jump on my bike for, you know, if, if the computer drives me crazy. And so you, you just have to get clear about what it is you want and what your what success looks like to you. And that's where it takes a lot of courage because success to you may not appear as success to other people, but at the end of your life, you're going to look back and either say, oh, I'm so glad I didn't care about that and I just lived the way I wanted to live, or you're going to think, why did I, why did I care so much how I appeared to others? This, that was my life and it's gone. So, so much to think about already. So I think it would be really helpful if I just run through the top five regrets. So, mm-hmm. or unless you would like to, Bronnie. No, I've said it enough. Yeah. You go. <laughs> so, so the first one is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life expected of me. Number two is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. I think it's really relevant to the first one that we were just discussing, but there, if we look at number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. And I think this ties in really nicely with the first one. So what experiences have you had around number five? Mm. Okay, so, well, a, a lot, <laughs> a lot again. Um, the the best example, I guess, or the one that comes to mind because she was so close to I, I grew to love her, her dearly as well, was a woman called Rosemary. So she had been, again, it's not meant to be the same theme here, but, but I guess it is a little bit. She'd been in an unhappy marriage. And uh, but she was in a domestic violence situation. She was just about just about killed, and um, through being beat up by her husband. This is years, decades ago, and divorced him. And she'd lived in a small town. And despite all of that, she she was shamed by her family. So they had basically said that she embarrassed the family by divorcing because you didn't divorce in those days. And that, you know, that she should have kept the whole issue quiet and covered her bruises and got on with it and all of that sort of yucky stuff. And so she didn't ever go into another relationship. She was over, you know, didn't think she was worthy of it. But also this shame that was dumped on her as a young woman really shaped where she went from that. And so she climbed the corporate ladder at a time that women really were, were very rare and she was one of the first CEOs of a big company in Australia and but it was a very masculine world and she approached it from a very masculine perspective um, and 
really lost touch with with her feminine side because of this shame and this embarrassment. And it wasn't until she was dying that she realised that she actually had a sense of humour and it, and I, you know, I, I actually helped bring it out of her because she was, she was fierce. She was so bossy and miserable and awful that at one stage I was ready to go and she told me to go and she's screaming at me to go because I, I wouldn't be spoken to the way she was speaking to me. But then I just started getting really cheeky with her and poking my tongue out and dancing around the floor and being stupid and, and it sort of cracked something open in her and by the time she died a few months later, she was a completely different woman and she she was one of many who had said this but it, she was the first to articulate it in that way where she said, why didn't I realise that it was just their opinion? Like I have been paying penance for the last 50 odd years based on the shame I supposedly caused my family even though all she'd done was got out of a really sick marriage and and she hadn't allowed herself any joy she didn't allow anyone get to get close to her again and she realized that happiness was a choice that she hadn't allowed herself to be happy and we spoke about it in depth after that because it just escalated the, the conversation was was fascinating and and what it came down to was that Life is suffering and we all, like there is suffering in life, but life is also beautiful. And so we are all stretched and challenged and we all have resistance to where life wants us to go and who life wants us to be. And most of our suffering is based on, on that resistance. But even during the worst times, we can still choose what to focus on. So it's not denying that life is you know, is hard. If we're in a hard time, we're in it. We know we're in it. But we can sort of let those feelings out and then we can say, yes, but there's people in the world who love me. If I died, someone would notice. And some people in the world, no one would notice if they died. Or I live a rich life. I have a a roof over my head. And, you know, sometimes it has to come down to those little things. Other times it can be, okay, I'm feeling so miserable, but I'm healthy or or I'm sick, but I'm loved, you know. And, and so the choice of happiness isn't denying the hard times. It's just saying, okay, that's how it is, but there's also good stuff going on here as well. And the other side of that is also that how long do you want to stay stuck in your old story? Do you want to always be telling the hard story or complaining or whinging or do you actually want to focus on the good stuff as well and not finish the good stuff with a but? So it's like someone says, how are you going? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm great. I'm, I'm doing really well. I've just got a new job. Oh, but, you know, things are hard at home. Or You know, like get rid of the but. It might be true things are hard at home but you're going to keep them hard at home if you keep giving them power and focus. So if you actually say, yeah, okay, yeah, things are good. I've just got a new job. There's the choice about happiness that you have chosen. Okay, at the moment, I'm going to tell a good story here. And the more you can focus on that, despite the other stuff going on, despite the stuff you're processing, the more that expands, the happiness expands, and the the positive, um, the positive side of your life expands. And I've I've tested this and tried this over and over, and and it's certainly proven to be true.
I am very curious about um, this fifth regret because in the run-up to <clears throat> this episode, I brought the five regrets and I talked to a few um, people who were close to me just because I wanted to see which regret stood out to what person and, and what thoughts and questions they had surrounding each one. So, for example, my mother was drawn to number four. My brother had questions about number two and... It was my girlfriend that was captivated by number five. And we had a conversation about it. And the question that she asked me was that the word let in that sentence implies that everything, external factors may have been there. The tools may have been there for you to be happy. But you were the one, you know, you were the one preventing it from being so. So the question I have for you is what are the barriers that prevent people letting themselves be happy? Their, their self-worth. Like, are they courage, courage? Are they courageous enough to allow themselves, to permit themselves to be happy? So, um, yeah, so the barriers are, do they hold themselves with enough love and esteem that they're allowed that that they dare to allow that happiness through or on some level do they aspire to that happiness but don't actually think they're they're really worth it or it's never going to happen perfect and as you know let's move through some of the regrets now so if we go on to number two i wish i hadn't worked so hard is that a case of you wish you hadn't worked so hard on you know, a particular thing or maybe things that you weren't passionate about or is it just in general? It was it was in general in the sense that the, the people who shared that regret with me wished they'd kept a little bit more balance. It wasn't about not loving their work. A lot of them loved their work and I love my work and I work hard, so I get that. But it's about making time for other areas of your life so that, not only if work gets taken away from you that you've still got some other aspects of life to support you, but the more you can step away from work sometimes and just do other fun things like play a game of tennis with friends or or hang out with, with your partner or walk your dog, whatever, or join a community, things, you know, other areas of life, the more that you can create space for those things the more efficiency you bring to your work anyway. So a lot of the reasons people work hard is because they're driven by the fear that if they don't do that, that the wheels will fall off. Whereas what people came to realize was there was always a choice and they would have found a way around. And because I've been committed to that, I've I've found this to be completely true that the, like today on my bike ride, I came back to to the office with so much more efficiency and, and, a, and a computer that was working, um, but I came back with so much more efficiency and clarity that I knocked the work I had to do on the head in half the time I would have if I'd have just stayed there and really slogged it out. And so the working too hard is just about, not working too hard, is about not allowing work to be your everything. So I, I feel like for that one that there's a major element of connection because 
it is probably implied that when one is always in a constant state of striving of of chasing after their goals that just you know there's only so many time in it there's only so much time in a day we have to let other things fall essentially and often their connections their relationships so i feel like that 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 fits in quite nicely with number 4 i wish i had stayed in touch with my friends so is this a common theme which which you find that at the end of life what people crave the most is connection that's all i crave oh and and um painkillers <laughs> um <laughs> which is the truth you know sleep painkillers um yeah it's it's connection because at the end of your life there's no time for small talk and people just want to know that their family is going to be okay without them and dying people want to live for as long as they possibly can. Even if their bodies aren't able to get out of bed and they only have an hour or two of clarity a day because they're sleeping the rest of the time to avoid the pain because they're on such strong painkillers, um, they when they're awake, they want that that time to be rich in company rich in um not in in uh quantity of company that's exhausting for them but in quality of company and so they want people who know them well who can bring some lightness to them and who can reminisce about the good old days because this is their last chance to do that and i found that a lot of dying people really missed their their long-term friends in their last weeks so that that's you know such a an interesting idea that you talked about how you know that's the connection is all they craved and <coughs> excuse me that connection is all that they craved and you know about the quality of company so something and you also said there that that they want to stay alive so something i'd like to ask you is if the people that regret or that have regrets that they want to live longer is there a case of people say maybe like your grandmother that are the happiest to go are the and that have accepted their own mortality are the people that maybe don't have as much regrets and they feel as if they've really capitalized on the opportunities given to them yeah i think so i I, that's really well well put i i think so what i found was those who had the most peace at the end of their lives were those who didn't have regrets because not everyone i looked after had regrets it was the reason i wrote about regrets was because the pain of regrets transformed my own life so much that um, that it, it transformed me. So that that was why I was called to write about that. But not every patient did, and those who didn't, they they not only felt they'd lived their life well, but they also had still had great communication with their family. There weren't dramas going on with families and people fighting over the will before they died or any any of that stuff they had humor they they also had they had contemplated death and and in all of the cases of those people who died 
their actual transition, the moment of death itself, was a lot smoother than, I won't say all, but than some of those who really resisted death. And um, and so just in terms of the physicality of, of dying, of, of the body closing down. And, um, yeah, so I think that, that that is is definitely the case, Joe. That that you know the regrets certainly shape the the last transition a, a lot. Yeah, the last chapter a lot. If we just look, we have one regret left that we haven't covered, and that is, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Now, my initial question is: Do you remember a certain theme or a certain type of feelings that? was more apparent than others when people were talking to you about regret? There, no, there was an equal amount, I think, of people wishing that they'd had... So there was a 91-year-old man who wanted to share a bit more vulnerability with his family, but they would always pretended nothing was wrong in life. Even when he was dying, they were pretending he wasn't dying. And he wanted to share stuff with them, but the communication channel wasn't opened and... It really broke his heart that he he just couldn't find the strength to be a different person in front of them, to be that raw. So so there is that aspect of it where people were wishing they could. He wanted to say how much he loved his family, how much he was proud of his children, stuff like that, but it was just not stuff that they'd really ever ever spoken about and he felt that if he spoke to them that way they'd say oh none of that now you know so he didn't uh, he had to die without expressing all of that but then I I think there was a, probably an equal amount of people saying I wish I'd stood up for myself I wish I hadn't I wish I had have said what I really thought to that person so um yeah there's there's uh, there's two sides to that regret it's so so interesting to really meditate and ponder on these regrets so i suppose if we could try to i know it's a difficult topic to do this but if we could try to summarize these and if i were to say to you what are some of the main lessons that you personally have have learned being surrounded by death that it can teach us about life going forward that it's okay to be human it's okay to make mistakes we all that's how we learn that the more loving and compassionate we can be with ourselves the more loving and compassionate other people learn to be with themselves the more loving and compassionate we can be with other people, the more they are with, with others. So I just think that we need to get rid of all the nonsense about how we're supposed to look in front of other people and accept the fact that our imperfection is our imperfections, because we've all got plenty of them, is what makes us human. And that's actually the beauty of our humanity rather than the the mistake of our humanity, our we're not meant to be perfect. It's an ongoing journey of learning and growth and expansion. So I just think more than anything, don't have expectations on others other than encouraging them to be who they actually want to be because we, we're all in this together. And the more we can accept people as who they want to be, not who we want them to be, then the more that, that allows everyone to, to actually bloom. Yeah. 
that's 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 fascinating and i would say that just speaking to you today the three major lessons which i feel i'll take away from this and i'd love for our audience to let us know what they think is to use regret as a decision making tool then i then i would say the level of focus and presentness and I have to say I mean I don't think I've ever felt a guest feel so present and and involved you can really feel it through 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 Skype (laughs) so I commend (laughs) you that Bronnie and and, yeah and then the last one I would say which which I feel which I feel like I've really learned from you today is just about embracing your own imperfections and your own suffering and and I feel like there's so much weight and we highly, highly advise people to go and pick up this book, Top 5 Regrets of the Dying. It's definitely something to ponder. So if we bring this interview now to, if we just start to wind down, we've got three questions which we ask all of our guests at the end. So the first question is, you're a very, very well respected author yourself brawny are there any books any works which have particularly impacted your life oh i guess yes i mean there there are but my favorite book of all time is footprints on the path by eileen caddy um it's i would call that my bible if i'm ever needing strength i just have to open a page of that and i i always find the answer that i'm looking for so yeah footprints on the path the second question is, are there any societal norms that you love to or find yourself going against? Every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> the Every one of them. <laughs> I'm not. No, we find that with uh, our guests, um, especially yeah. amongst authors. They, they seem to uh, go against the grain. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's well, the type of guest to recruit. <laughs> yeah, r- routine, routine, and um, and Monday to Friday is um, it's a tricky one because I was homeschooling my daughter and now she's in school. So uh, something I've resisted for a long time is has crept back into my life to have a routine. So um, yeah, we're actually already planning the next couple of fake sick days she's going to have. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Do, do you feel as well it's, it's like one thing which, which I, personally I've noticed is you just seem to have a huge level of intensity and focus to, to you which you bring to conversations. That's, that's definitely not something you experience on the street. Like I couldn't imagine if we went out to eat that you would be playing with your phone whilst you're speaking to me or, or anything like that. Oh no, and I think you know I'm I'm in my fifties, and I, I feel really grateful. This I think this is one of the biggest blessings of my life that I grew up in a time before phones, uh, before mobile phones and stuff. So I actually know the difference, and I really feel for the new generation because they, as parents, we really have to work at. Um, them experiencing life offline uh, you really have to work at it a lot so that they know the benefits and can feel those benefits but yeah I'm not I'm, I'm definitely um, more of an offline person I, I'm committed to my life offline because the life online is necessary and is wonderful and we wouldn't be here now having this great conversation if, if it wasn't that the case but 
yeah, I, I think there's so much richness and quality of life that is lost by having by losing that balance of online and offline life. The last question that we have for you to end what I think Joe and I can both agree has been a fantastically human conversation is if I pitch you this scenario, so everyone in the world is tuned into the same frequency and someone comes to you and says, Bronny, I'm going to give you the opportunity to broadcast a short but impactful message and everyone on the planet is going to hear it. What would Bronny Way's message to the world be? We're all in this together. Um, and when and, and this last bit is advice that was given to me a long time ago from a wise friend. Um, when things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. Yeah. Because often, yeah, often things can turn out a lot better than we think they're going to. Bronnie, what a, a captivating conversation. Where can our audience connect with you? And do you have any asks of us and of our audience? No, just um, just to, uh, I ask of, of this lovely audience to keep supporting you guys because you're obviously doing a really wonderful job with this podcast and bringing a lot of wisdom through through yourselves and, and through your guests, I'm sure. And, uh, yes, yeah, so just to keep supporting you guys, that's what I'd, I'd love for, for the listeners to to try and do. And, no, for, for you guys, I'm, I'm just grateful for this conversation and people can find me at bronnyware.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, and um, yeah, that's I didn't do Twitter. I never got around to that one, and I probably never will. Um, so yeah, just bronnyware.com or Facebook or Instagram, you'll find me there. Amazing! All that will be linked in the show notes below, including a link to Bronnie Ware's "The Top Five Regrets of the Day in a Life Transformed by the Dealey Departing." So anyone listening to this that wants to pick that book up, they can just swipe up and the link will be there. Bronnie, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know Joe has as well. And we really appreciate the level of focus, as Joe said, that you brought to the conversation. It did not go unnoticed. It's been an absolute delight for me too. So thank you both.